This is Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and speak to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Yang Wen of RFA's Vietnamese Service. How are you doing today, Yang? I'm doing great, Paul. I'm excited to be here co-hosting for the first time with you, uh, filling in this week for our regular host, Matt Pennington, who's away. Thanks for joining us. This week, I'll be speaking to Alim Setaw, the director of RFA's Uyghur Service, about the unfolding drama of sanctions and boycotts over forced labor and other rights abuses in Xinjiang, following findings that China is committing genocide against the Uyghurs. China has ramped up its propaganda campaign and imposed tit-for-tat sanctions against Western entities and individuals, and spearheaded a boycott of Western fashion and sports labels who have shunned Xinjiang cotton over forced labor concerns. And later in the show, Yang Wen of our Vietnamese service will delve into an unusual interaction near the Paracel Islands involving Chinese and Vietnamese vessels these past month. She's speaking with Zach Haver, RFA's South China Sea reporter, who uncovered, tracked, and recreated this curious spectacle. RFA's Uyghur service has played a pivotal role in bringing attention to the plight of the Uyghurs in China, where since 2017, as many as 1.8 million people have been incarcerated in detention camps, aimed at weakening their affiliation with their culture and Muslim faith. My guest today is Uyghur service director Alim Setov, who's making his second appearance on Eyes on Asia. Well, thanks for making time for us. Thank you, Paul. The last time we had you on this show was right after then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, on his way out the door, made the declaration that the U.S. viewed the treatment of the Uyghurs, including the camps and the uh, forced sterilization of women and the forced labor, as genocide. So a lot has happened since those times. Can you bring us up to speed on the developments since that Mike Pompeo declaration of January 19th to 20th? Yes, Paul. And uh, after Secretary Pompeo determined that China is committing both genocide and crimes against humanity towards the Uyghur people, and the new Biden administration also acknowledged the same thing, basically stating that China is indeed committing both of these uh, monstrous crimes in the world. Although after that, the Biden administration was hoping to work with the Chinese government on global warming and uh, North Korea and other important issues. But in their first meeting between Secretary Blinken, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and the Chinese diplomats, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and the Chinese State Councilor Yang Jiechi, in their summit in Alaska, uh, things didn't turn out really well because the Chinese diplomats basically told the U.S. side to back off on any issue, like the genocide of the Uyghurs, like the attack on democracy in Hong Kong, and uh, also uh, Chinese presence and the inclusion of entire South China Sea as part of China, all of these issues. And uh, of course, soon after, the United States, along with its allies, UK, Canada, and the European Union sanctioned the four Chinese officials together. Then obviously China is not very happy with this, and China was trying to defend its own position on the genocide of the Uyghurs, and China fought back. China basically countersanctioned the U.S., British, Canadian, and the European officials, academics, and the think tanks. Uh, but from our interviews with officials and think tanks, it seems Chinese sanction actually backfired. It made them more determined to be more proactive in uh, their work to be critical of the Chinese government's actions in the Uyghur region. 
Yeah, and we've seen some examples of that because not long after the United States made the genocide determination, uh, several European countries started debates and Canada did. And what's the state of play with the other countries out there having decided or still debating the genocide label? Yes, indeed. As you say, the, after the U.S. determination, the Canadian Parliament also unanimously recognized that China is committing genocide against Uyghur people. And the Dutch Parliament also recognized that uh, China is committing genocide. Similar motions have been introduced in the Belgian Parliament and Italian Parliament, and many more may come soon. And obviously, no, this is a global issue now. More and more governments uh, began to pay more attention and the uh, Uyghurs are hoping that the European Union, uh, as a block of 27 countries, will also recognize this as a genocide to exert more pressure on China. One key element of this fast-moving story that your Uyghur service has reported on, and in fact we've reported in English, is the role of Jewish faith leaders, Holocaust scholars, and I believe Holocaust survivors groups in terms of pushing this debate forward. What's your experience with that and what does it say about the issue? Yes, indeed. Uh, after the UN founded in 1948, after they declared never again due to the Holocaust, the Jewish people have a strong sense of making sure nothing that happened to the Jewish people during the Nazi rule will happen again to any other community. And now they are realizing China is committing genocide and crimes against humanity, and a lot of them feel very strongly in defense of the Uyghurs against the Chinese government's persecution. So we have seen in the United Kingdom, for example, many Holocaust survivors they also spoke out against China's genocide of Uyghurs and urged Prime Minister Boris Johnson to actually pass a genocide amendment to their trade bill. And also in the U.S., the Jewish uh, World Watch, they started like this week, the week of Uyghur action. Uh, this week also the week of Passover. So they are commemorating Passover and also remembering the Uyghur people who are facing genocide. And they actually held a Jewish Uyghur Freedom Seder on that particular event. Well, for the Uyghur's point of view, it's uh, harder to have a more clear, more heavy moral voice behind you than to have the Jewish faith with their known history. I want to return to the sanctions that you brought up and uh, the U.S. and the European Union sanctions and some of the British sanctions were pretty much coordinated. They were announced within hours of each other and they targeted similar officials. And they were fairly narrowly targeted because there's a lot of negotiations that had to take place in Europe, especially among the 27 EU members. But China's response was not particularly carefully targeted. It essentially went after think tanks and large institutions, not individuals. And uh, it didn't really tie it to any behavior that these Europeans or these Americans or these Canadians had done. It was more statements or views, whereas the U.S. sanctions particularly tied responsible mid and higher level Chinese officials to specific, you know, they have a law to fulfill, so they had specific designations. The mismatch between these sanctions is causing all kinds of trouble, not so much for the Uyghurs, but for the Chinese. Can you elaborate on the sort of that backfiring, all that noise that they're making? And it seems to me that it's just bringing more attention to the issue that they want to shut up about. <laughs> exactly, Paul. As you eloquently put it, you know, the Chinese government just sanctioned American European officials and the think tanks, academics, just for the sake of retaliation, not because American European officials and all the think tank and academics have committed genocide or crimes against humanity or have done anything evil in a way. 
it is uh, Chinese officials who are executing the genocidal policies have been targeted and sanctioned by the American Europeans. So China's uh, retaliatory sanctions are very blindsided. Uh, they are just uh, like China got mad and uh, we want to sanction, want to do something about it to shout to the Chinese people who are standing up to America and Europe. So that's kind of what they did. But in fact, uh, many European and American officials and think tanks, they all say, you know, it's a badge of honor, first of all. And uh, we are glad we're being sanctioned. I so, saw that. And uh, I mean, it's sad circumstances, but that's kind of hilarious. And that same day when that all came out, the World Uyghur Congress representative said that by getting Boris Johnson interested in the issue, yeah. the sanctions mm -hmm. saved him a year of work. Exactly. And I thought that was a, a strong sense of irony that, there. That's exactly true, because as Rahima Mahmoud, World Uyghur Congress UK director, explained, you know, because of the genocide amendment, Boris Johnson government is opposed to the amendment to be included in the trade bill. So for all those people who got sanctioned, you know, actually those were the ones who were very critical of Boris Johnson. Now Boris Johnson welcomed them uh, to his office, expressed his strong support of his uh, members of parliament and his concern of the Uyghurs. So the Chinese counter sanctions are indeed backfiring uh, and also maybe derailing the European Union agreement with China on the on the investment uh, convention on the their agreement with That's China CAI, on investment. The, yes, yeah, which in in theory could be a precursor to a free trade agreement down the road. So the, they've definitely poisoned the well in Europe, even for people who are favorably inclined towards China or at least willing to look the other way or to try to separate business from politics. But as we know. Business and politics are hard to separate when you have an international economy like this. And my next question is, of course, not only do we have the diplomats, Chinese diplomats screaming, we have Chinese movie stars and athletes kind of screaming, but they're not screaming at China. They're screaming at the foreign brands that are trying to take a stand on ethical supplies and, you know, the forced labor issue. So what we have is a Chinese campaign to, again, stir up the home base. But it's, it's also playing out in strange ways. It's, it's certainly squeezing some European companies, at least short term. What is your observation of that dynamic now that the corporate world is also involved? Yes, uh, the Chinese, uh, of course, they attacked HMN and uh, Nike and uh, many more other brands, of course. Very nationalistic outburst against this foreign companies, you know. On the surface, you see that. But. Uh, interestingly, when Nike and uh, HMM stores in China, uh, they just had a big sale of their products. You see tens of hundreds of Chinese people rush into the stores to buy these products in spite of the nationalistic outrage against these companies. So you see, on the one hand, China wants to uh, pressure these uh, companies to toe Chinese government line. And on the other hand, you know, Chinese people do not necessarily hate this brand. But the Western companies that are doing business in China, uh, they're in a dilemma. On the one hand, they don't want to offend the Chinese government. They want to access a huge market and make money. On the other hand, uh, there is this ethical issue. They have to take a stand on slave labor, forced labor, and genocide. They cannot be just the bystanders. You know, uh, They cannot just be silent. If they're silent, they're, they're seen as complicit in this genocide and crimes against humanity. So obviously, uh, they need to take a principal approach. Uh, they need to remove themselves or distance themselves from the forced 
labor situation in the Uyghur region and the supply chain. So now China is basically showing this nationalistic outburst as a very nasty way to harass, scare, intimidate, and threaten this Western company. So it has become increasingly difficult now for Western companies to do business as usual in China because of what's happening. Yeah, indeed. And we've seen other countries, third countries, step up like Australia, which of course has been a target of Chinese bullying for a couple of years now, strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also pointed that they're just being an unreliable business partner and they're weaponizing all kinds of trade. So I do see generally a dynamic of counterproductivity. And it's uh, interesting because the Chinese have that expression to pick up a rock only to drop it on your own foot. In America, we say, shoot yourself in the foot. And of course, I'm doing this podcast from England. And over here, they use the football term, soccer term, own goal, scoring Mm -hmm. an own goal. And I I see more own goals coming. Yes, uh, a lot of companies initially hesitated, you know, to pull out of the Uyghur region and also to cut their supply chains. Nike and Apple, they also lobbied against the passage of the Uyghur forced labor prevention bill at U.S. Congress. But, uh, you know, these are American companies, even though they operate in authoritarian countries, they have to live up to American ethical and corporate standards. And so it is uh, very hard for them. But because of their intransigence, unwillingness to pull out of China, or at least uh, cut ties with the forced labor situation. So this add enormous pressure on them as well, because on the one hand, they don't want to lose the Chinese market. On the other hand, they don't want to be demonized in their own countries, in in US, Canada, in Europe. You know, their majority of their customers are still in these markets. And uh, so they don't want to offend them. They're probably stuck between a, a rock and a hard place in a sense. And it's hard to separate Nike, Adidas, and these kind of companies from sports sponsorships and the Olympics, which is less than a year away in the case of the Winter Games in Beijing. Uh, so what kind of timeline do you expect to see when the debate about the Olympics gets very serious? Yeah, first of all, you know, the questions asked the U.S. government and European governments as well and uh, by reporters and also by activists urging them to boycott the Beijing Olympics because... This is not just a regular Olympics. Many Uyghurs and other activist groups call this genocide Olympics because China is committing genocide and also is going to host the Olympics. So how could the Western governments led by the U.S., who know the situation, who determine that's genocide and crimes against humanity, who sanction Chinese officials precisely because of that, uh, will send their athletes and have the Olympics uh, as uh, usual? I think we'll see more and more campaigns, protests in front of the corporate sponsors, Coca-Cola, Nike, and even NBC that's going to broadcast live all these Olympic events. So the upcoming Olympics, this is also a huge conundrum for the West, how to tackle, whether to send athletes, then do something there to showcase their support and solidarity with the Uyghur people who are facing genocide, or just to completely boycott the Beijing Olympics. With that, I want to thank you, Alim, for making time for us out of a busy week and uh, look forward to hearing your views in a couple months when the debate no doubt sharpens ahead of the Olympic Games. Thank you very much, Paul. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Paul and Alim, for those insights. Well, we turn now to another area where Chinese actions have raised concerns 
the waterways in the South China Sea seem to have gotten quite crowded and potentially dangerous as China appears to be bullying other countries to get its way in those waters. We witnessed in recent days hundreds of Chinese ships amassing at Whitsun Reef. China says they are just fishing vessels seeking shelter, but many have reason to believe that they are maritime militia challenging the Philippines' resolve to defend its EEZ. But that's not the only flashpoint in the South China Sea where China's action in recent days have raised alarm bells. Another dispute played out hidden in plain sight, this one near the Paracel Islands. To talk to me about this is RFA's South China Sea reporter Zachary Haver. Zach is a longtime expert in South China Sea disputes and first-time guest on the show. Welcome to the Eyes of Asia podcast, Zach. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. Absolutely. So you recently landed a scoop in your reporting of a um, standoff, shall we say, between the Chinese Coast Guard and a Vietnamese ship near the Paracel Islands. The Paracel is, of course, being controlled by China since the battle in 1974, but Vietnam still claims. Tell us what you discovered. Yeah, so uh, what we uncovered was uh, what we called a dangerous dance between a couple uh, Chinese and Vietnamese ships uh, near the Paracel Islands about 25 nautical miles to the southwest of Triton Island, uh, we found a China Coast Guard ship and a Vietnamese vessel maneuvering around each other in late February. And they did that for a couple days uh, in the last week of February, and then the uh, China Coast Guard ship left, but the Vietnamese ship remained. And then uh, fast forward a week or two into March, the uh, China Coast Guard ship returned and the uh, two vessels continued to maneuver around each other for over a week until the uh, Vietnamese vessel was replaced by a uh, Vietnamese law enforcement ship that, that then engaged the China Coast Guard ship. And after the China Coast Guard ship uh, left, then a uh, what appears to be a Chinese maritime militia ship briefly joined the fray as well. Um, so this, this all occurred uh, about over a month between the end of February and mid to late March. Yeah, and you described it as a dangerous dance and you reconstructed those movements. To me, when I looked at the video of those movements, it looked kind of like a Tom and Jerry chase with the China Coast Guard ship chasing the Vietnamese vessel. You were able to confirm these ships' movements using data that was publicly available? Yes, so we used a ship tracking platform called Marine Traffic. And what that does is it gathers uh, automatic identification system data, which is something that uh, ships transmit to let other ships and the authorities know exactly where they are so you can avoid accidents at sea and you know, know what ships are where. And th this incident that we watched, uh, it, it really started with this AIS data. We, we noticed that these two ships, the China Coast Guard ship and the Vietnamese vessel, uh, and for context, we couldn't verify who operated this Vietnamese vessel it appeared to be about mm -hmm. 60 meters long, but based on additional information we later received, it may belong to Vietnam's maritime militia force, but we, we don't have confirmation of that. But mm -hmm. so we, we noticed these two vessels uh, very close to each other. And so using this AIS data and the marine traffic platform, we continued to track them over multiple days. And it has this great feature where you can uh, play back a day's worth of AIS data. And, and so what we could do is create these visuals to really watch uh, these ships kind of chase each other around in real time. And th that's pretty rare because a lot of ships operating in the South China Sea often uh, go dark, uh, as we call it, which is when they turn off their AIS transponders. 
But as far as we could tell, all of the ships involved in this had their AIS transponders on the whole time, so we could really watch them just uh, chase each other around. And we, we even were able to use this AIS data, which is based on geographic coordinates, and plug that into a, a satellite imagery platform called Planet Labs. And through that, we were able to actually find visuals mm -hmm. of these ships at sea that matched up uh, on the satellite imagery where we were seeing the AIS uh, broadcasts from. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, um, you mentioned that usually they turn off AIS uh, tracking for this kind of, I guess, um, shadowing of each other. But um, why do you think that they had it on this time around? Sending ships out to contested areas, that's often a way of uh, asserting your maritime and territorial claims in that area. And it's pretty normal for maritime law enforcement ships to have their AIS uh, signals on for a fair amount of their operations because they're government vessels carrying out official duties. But in this case, it could, it could have been ways of Vietnam and China telling each other that they're there and signaling their, their claims. And one of the interesting instances for this was the uh, vessel that we identified as part of uh, China's maritime militia. Um, we, we don't know exactly which vessel it was because they often switch around their identifiers, but it is an identifier that has been used by the militia in the past and its behavior matched uh, previous militia behavior. What it did is it disappeared from port uh, on mainland China turned off its AIS, and then it turned that transponder back on right when it reached the area of the standoff, as if to say, here we are. We, we are broadcasting our presence. We are making our presence known. And it proceeded to engage the uh, Vietnamese law enforcement ship that had shown up. And then the Chinese militia vessel, it then turned off its AIS as soon as it was leaving the standoff area. So it only turned on its AIS when it, when it was engaged in that area. Hmm, very interesting. So, of course, this all comes against the backdrop of heightened tensions in the South China Sea and the maritime militia being raised as one of the parties in, in um, those tensions, the massive presence of Chinese vessels. There have been several um, experts pointing out that some of the vessels are maritime militia vessels at Whitson Reef, uh, that, of course, being very alarming. And then earlier in February, we had China's new Coast Guard law go into effect, basically allowing the Chinese Coast Guard to use weapons to shoot at other vessels within the very expansive areas that uh, China claims. Now, this confrontation that you uncovered, is this an instance where the, the new Coast Guard law might have been utilized? I mean, how close were these ships to confrontation? You said some nautical miles. I mean, that's pretty close. Yeah, at certain points, these ships came within what appears to be one kilometer of each other. The data can be a little fuzzy at times. Mm -hmm. um, whether the new Coast Guard law would have come into effect is not quite clear because some of the uh, use of force that's allowed by that law, it comes after several escalations, mm -hmm. essentially. So it, without knowing what happened at sea, it's hard to say whether that would have affected the standoff that we saw. But the, the important thing here is that the Coast Guard law really is not a game changer in the South China Sea in, in terms of allowing the China Coast Guard to go and do things that it had never done before. The, the China Coast Guard has been on the front lines of the South China Sea for years. And even before it was called the China Coast Guard, 
the uh, previous Chinese maritime law enforcement agencies that were then merged into the China Coast Guard had been operating in those waters for a very long time. And the same goes for China's maritime militia, both with the militia forces, which are ostensible fishermen who actually answer to a People's Liberation Army chain of command and often receive formal training and equipment from the military, Mm -hmm. both those militia forces and the China Coast Guard and other maritime law enforcement agencies as well allow China to assert its claims on the front lines of the South China Sea without the use of military force. And so that that really is the key because China doesn't have to start a war to get what it wants in the South China Sea. It can just use these other tools like the maritime militia, which can allow China to deny that it's even using force because it can pretend that these forces are just fishermen, even though we know they are not innocent fishermen. Mm-hmm. It, it can use those tactics or it can use its uh, law enforcement vessels, which are quite large. Some of them are over 100 meters long. And so it really doesn't need to use the military to uh, bully other claimants like Vietnam and the Philippines. It can just use these other tools. Yeah, so essentially creating a, a forcing a new normal on the South China Sea. Exactly. So China has been making aggressive moves simultaneously on several fronts uh, in recent days to further its uh, claims uh, under the Nine Dash Line. What do you think is Beijing's game plan here? I think it's really just an escalation of what we've seen before, um, because over the past decade, we've had these continuous Coast Guard operations. We've had the growth of maritime militia forces and increasing use of them. We, we've had China's island building campaign. So it's been building up a lot of capacity to do assertive operations, and it's been doing those operations anyways. So it's gained a lot of experience in in how to successfully pull these off, Mm -hmm. and it has the capacity to do them. And and with things like the China Coast Guard law coming into effect, it has more kind of internal legitimacy in in terms of covering its activity under domestic laws. And, And so we can just expect more of the same. And now how China will react to increasing international attention toward mm-hmm. its behavior in the South China Sea, that's something that will be very interesting to watch because, of course, the other South China Sea claimants are very worried about the South China Sea, but increasingly you have countries that are not formal claimants like Indonesia and Australia and Japan, the United States, Canada, Germany, UK, and a whole host of other countries getting involved, both in the diplomatic legal front through the United Nations, but also sending their own warships and forces through the South China Sea as a way to assert the uh, freedom of navigation through those waters. And that is something that has really gathered steam over the last year or so, but especially over the last couple of months, there's been a lot of movement on that front. And, and so we should expect to see some kind of reaction from China, but they're definitely not going to take all these other countries getting involved, they're not going to take that well. They, they like to keep the South China Sea limited to just the South China Sea claimants. Mm-hmm. And among those South China Sea claimants, they like to deal with this on a bilateral level. They don't like to raise the issue in multilateral forums. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly be watching, and I know you'll be watching it very closely. Thank you so much, Zachary, for your excellent reporting. I know you have more uh, great stories that you're working on, and I hope we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Young and Zach, for that fascinating look at the South China Sea. 
Yeah, that was great reporting by Zach. And listeners, if you haven't, check out this video that Zach and the RFA team created. It's on our website. It's really amazing to see this, this dance or this cat and mouse game, as I like to call it. I agree. Uh, you don't get to see that very often. This was Paul Eckert for Radio Free Asia's Eyes on Asia podcast. And I was joined by Yang Wen of the Vietnamese service. Matt Pennington will be back with us next week. Please join us again next week. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are at that site or other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Paul Eckert at Radio Free Asia. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again 